Welcome to Asbury United Methodist Church. My name is Pastor Will. Thanks for joining our podcast. This is where you'll be able to find all of our sermons, as well as special devotionals and interviews. We hope these messages inspire hope and bring support as you grow on your journey of faith. If you have any questions, or if you want further conversation, or if you simply like what you hear, connect with Asbury through our Facebook page or by checking our website at asburymaitland.org. Well, today we finish out our message series called Soul Keeping. Uh, the series has been based on a book of the same name by Pastor John Ortberg, and it's been inspired uh, by the conversations that John Ortberg had with his friend and mentor, Dallas Willard, about the soul. Uh, Dallas Willard passed away uh, back in 2013. Now, the book, Soul Keeping, and again, I do encourage you to purchase the book and to read it uh, as you feel led. Uh, you can find it in bookstores. You can find it on Amazon. Uh, but the book is divided into three parts, so subsequently, we've divided this sermon series into three parts. Uh, number one, what the soul is. Number two, what the soul needs. And then number three, the soul restored. And so we began this sermon series a couple of weeks ago by defining the soul, what the soul is, and discussing the soul's anatomy. The soul, as we said, it's not simply something that lives on after we die. The soul is the deepest expression of who we are. It is the deepest part of who we are. It's the operating system of our life. It guides and it directs our entire being. The soul involves the integration of our various parts. As human beings, we all have a will. We all have a mind. We all have a body. The soul is what integrates the will, the mind, and the body. I know we're getting technical here, but the soul is what integrates the will, mind, and body and binds them together as a whole, which means that when the will, the mind, and the body are all doing what they're supposed to do, when they're functioning as God intends for them to function, that makes for a healthy soul. But when any of these parts experience disunity or disintegration brought about by sin, well, then the soul is lost. And when we say that the soul is lost, we're not talking about a destination like hell. We're talking about a diagnosis, a condition. And the answer to this condition is what? It's salvation. Salvation isn't just about going to heaven one day. Salvation is truly about healing and deliverance at the deepest level of who we are in the care of God and the presence of Jesus Christ. And then from there, last week, we talked about what the soul needs in order to grow in God. The soul is made for God, so we talked about what the soul needs in order to grow in God. Simply put, the soul needs to embrace everyday life with God, not once in a while life with God, not just when I come to church life with God, but everyday life with God. And this requires intentionality. It requires diligence, creating space in our lives so that we can live with a conscious awareness of God's presence and God's love in every moment of the day. And last week, we talked about some really practical ways that all of us can do this. Well, folks, now we come to the third and final installment of this message series, The Soul Restored. The Soul Restored. What is a restored soul? And how does the soul, after going through a really difficult season, come to be restored? Well, as we get into all this, I want to start with an observation. I think it's generally the case that when people come into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, 
their soul experiences an initial phase of joy and excitement. You know what I'm talking about? I shared last week that when I was 16 years old and a rising junior in high school, uh, I attended this three-day youth retreat um, designed to lead you to God. And I left that retreat a changed person. I had this burning desire uh, to know God better, to love God more. In fact, one of the first things I did when I got home from that retreat is I began to read through the Bible each day. And by the time I was a senior in high school, I had read through the entire Bible. Now, I want to be clear, I didn't understand all of it. In fact, I still don't understand all of it. But I had read through it. I had attended that spiritual retreat uh, in August, because I was a rising junior in high school, as I said. Well, by October of that same year, just two months later, my call to pastoral ministry began to develop and grow. I had this sense deep down that God wanted me to dedicate my life to pastoral ministry. It scared me, terrified me, but I had that sense. And so a few months after that, uh, just after Christmas, I approached one of the pastors of my church, and I told him that. And so he and I began to meet occasionally, and we discussed uh, ordained ministry in the United Methodist Church. I became more active in my youth group. I led a home Bible study for other high school students. And in ways that now embarrass me because I realized that I did not have the best approach, I enthusiastically told everybody at my part-time job about God. And that annoyed them. You know why I know that? Because they told me it annoyed them and they would ask me to stop. But I was like a fool in love. And the person I was in love with was the God of the universe, and I wanted everybody to know about it. And there are a number of souls that start out their journey with God with that kind of passion, that kind of excitement, that kind of joy and enthusiasm, and there's nothing wrong with that. But then we get to a point, don't we? Like with any relationship, where over time that honeymoon phase wears off, and we discover that our life with God is not only met by moments of awe and intensity, but also by moments of deep sorrow and misery. Because the soul is the deepest expression of who we are, it is also the place of greatest pain, isn't it? The soul is vulnerable, and the soul is prone to hurt unlike any other. And for that reason, we don't speak about the dark night of the mind. We don't speak about the dark night of the will. We don't speak about the dark night of the spirit. Only the soul. The dark night of the soul. You ever heard that phrase or used that phrase before? That phrase, the dark night of the soul, you won't find it in the Bible. You'll find the concept there, as we're going to see in a moment. But that phrase, dark night of the soul, actually comes from a Christian monk named St. John of the Cross. Uh, St. John of the Cross uh, lived in Spain back in the 1500s, and he really wanted to reform the church, as many people did back in the 1500s. This was a very contentious time in the church's history. Well, his attempts to reform the church were heavily criticized, and because of that, John ended up in prison. Unfortunately, they imprisoned you for that sort of thing back then. And it was there in confinement with his hopes shattered and his dreams lost, that John penned his most well-known work, The Dark Night of the Soul. The Dark Night of the Soul, here's the definition of the Dark Night of the Soul. The Dark Night of the Soul, as John of the Cross described it, is not simply suffering. 
but rather suffering in the face of what feels like God's absence. Now, let's be clear. God is never absent from us. Jesus' promise in the Great Commission is that he's always going to be with us. He said this at the end of Matthew's gospel. But it, it feels like God is absent. It feels as if God is a million miles away. And so the spiritual practices that once brought us joy and excitement and fulfillment don't seem to do anything for us. Our prayers seem to go no higher than the ceiling. The Bible that we once turned to for comfort and encouragement and inspiration just appears to be an ordinary book. The worship music and the sermons just seem like empty words and promises. The dark night of the soul is the most difficult season that any soul can go through. And a lot of souls have gone through it. Even those in the Bible. Uh, Elijah. You ever heard of Elijah before? Elijah is one of the most renowned prophets of the Old Testament. In fact, when many of us hear the word prophet, we think of Elijah with few exceptions. Elijah spoke bold and courageous words to God's people, the Israelites, during a very critical time in the nation's history. You see, during this period of time, and this was about 860, uh, 870 years before Jesus, so almost 900 years before Jesus. During this period of time, uh, Israel was being led by King Ahab, A-H-A-B, King Ahab. Uh, and King Ahab was a terrible king. Uh, he was an awful king. And he actually led Israel, along with his wife Jezebel, he led Israel down a dark road of idolatry. Under his leadership, the Israelites worshipped all kinds of false gods, including the Canaanite god Baal and the Canaanite goddess Asherah. Well, consequently, God got frustrated with the people of Israel, and God wanted to get their attention. And so what did God do? God prevented rain from falling on the nation of Israel for how long? Do you remember? Three years. Well, what did that lead to? Led to a drought. It led to a famine. Crops weren't able to grow. People weren't able to eat. People were suffering. They were hurting because of all this. And Ahab, as the monarch, he should have done something. He should have helped the nation turn back to God, but he didn't do that. He was dragging his feet, kept leading the Israelites along with Jezebel down a road of idolatry. And Elijah, as a prophet, he couldn't take it anymore. So one day, he challenged Ahab to a spiritual showdown. Makes me think of like cowboys out in the West. But he challenged Ahab to this spiritual showdown. He came to Ahab one day. And he said, King Ahab, here's what I want you to do. I want you to gather the assembly of Israel and put them on Mount Carmel, which is a mountain in the northern part of Israel. And I also want you to gather 450 of the prophets of Baal and 400 of the prophets of Asherah. Now, my math isn't great, but 450 plus 400, that's 850, right? So 850 of these false prophets, along with the entire assembly of Israel, it's a lot of people on a mountain. And then Elijah stands among them, and he says, stop wavering between two opinions. Stop dancing around between two convictions. Listen, if the Lord God is God, worship him. If Baal is God, worship him. Here's what I want you to do. And he was talking to the prophets of Baal. I want you to take two bulls, slaughter them, put the meat on two different altars, 
Whichever God sets fire to the altar, that God is the true God. If Baal does it, then he's God. If the God of Israel does it, then he's God. And the people of Israel agree. Well, Elijah is a gentleman, so he lets the prophets of Baal go first. It's morning time, and those prophets begin to call on Baal's name, trying to get Baal's attention. But of course, what happens? Nothing. It gets to be noontime, and Elijah starts to have some fun with them. He says, come on, where is Baal? Is he asleep? Is he going to the bathroom right now? He actually says this. It's in the Bible. <laughs> is he on a trip somewhere? Come on, what's going on? And then the prophets of Baal get so frustrated, they start to cut themselves and harm themselves. But of course, still nothing happens. It gets to be evening, and it's Elijah's turn. And just to ensure integrity to the miracle, what does Elijah do? He constructs a trench around the altar, and what does he fill that trench with? Water. And then he has water poured up and down the altar, not once, not twice, three times, making that altar pretty much impossible to catch fire. And then Elijah calls in the name of God, and folks, just like that, that altar is ablaze, and the people of Israel are astounded and blown away. They fall to the ground. They finally begin to worship the God of Israel, something that they should have been doing all along, but they hadn't been doing. Finally, they're doing that, and Elijah rounds up every one of those prophets of Baal, and he destroys them which doesn't make Jezebel too happy because Jezebel worshiped Baal, whom those prophets represented. And so that story is found in 1 Kings chapter 18, and that brings us to the very next chapter, 1 Kings chapter 19. Take a listen with me to what happens next. These words are up on the screen. It says, when Ahab got home, he told his wife Jezebel everything Elijah had done including the way he had killed all the prophets of Baal. So Jezebel sent this message to Elijah, may the God strike me and even kill me if by this time tomorrow I have not killed you just as you killed them. Elijah was afraid and fled for his life. He went to Beersheba, a town in Judah, and he left his servant there. Then he went on alone into the wilderness, traveling all day. He sat down under a solitary broom tree and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life, for I am no better than my ancestors who have already died. After Elijah had that incident on Mount Carmel, I mean, he must have felt as if he were on top of the world. He had just challenged this very corrupt monarchy. He had just demonstrated in front of thousands of people that there is no God except for God. But no sooner had he done this than he finds himself in the wilderness, dry and thirsty. He's suicidal. He's pleading with God to take away his life because it would be so much better to die. Now, this season doesn't last very long for Elijah. It only lasts for about a moment. But sometimes the dark night can last much longer than that. Amen? John the Baptist is sometimes referred to as the Elijah of the New Testament. John the Baptist was charged with the amazing task of preparing the way for Jesus, getting everybody ready for the coming of God's anointed one, God's Messiah. And John tells us in his gospel 
Uh, there are four Gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. They all talk about John the Baptist. And, but John alone in his Gospel, he tells us that when John the Baptist sees Jesus, this is what he says. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There is no doubt in John the Baptist's mind that Jesus is who he said he is, that he is the Messiah. He's God's Lamb. He's the one who's come to save us from our sin. And then John baptizes Jesus in the Jordan River. Do you remember what happens when Jesus is baptized? The heavens split open. The Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus like a dove. By the way, in this scene, we see all three persons of the Godhead, the Trinity. You have uh, the Holy Spirit descending upon the Son, and then you, then you have the voice of the Father that declares, Behold, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. John the Baptist witnesses all this. I mean, how cool must that have been? Well, what happened to John the Baptist? He got arrested because he called out Herod for his immorality. And then what happened after that, as he was in prison, is he sent some of his own disciples to Jesus to verify if Jesus is in fact the Messiah. This is what it says in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7, verse 20. John's two disciples found Jesus and said to him, John the Baptist sent us to ask, again, John the Baptist couldn't do this himself because he was in prison. John the Baptist sent us to ask, are you the Messiah we've been expecting? Or should we keep looking for someone else? Wait a minute. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Are you the Messiah we've been expecting? Or should we keep looking for somebody else? It's clear that in this moment, John is surrounded by more than the four walls of a prison. He is consumed by the dark night of the soul. And folks, that's what the dark night is capable of doing. The dark night of the soul can fill us with so much pain, so much hurt, so much disappointment, so much doubt that we question everything, including the things that we hold most dear, like our faith. We wonder if our experience of God was even real. We all remember Mother Teresa for her incredible missionary work. Mother Teresa, up until her death in 1997, she served the poorest of the poor. But what a lot of folks don't know about Mother Teresa, she struggled with her own dark night. Unlike with Elijah, it didn't last for a moment. You know how long it lasted for? 50 years. 50 years. After her death, this was a sometime after her death, uh, her journals were released and they were published. Well, this is what Mother Teresa wrote in one of her entries. In my soul, I feel just the terrible pain of loss, of God not wanting me, of God not being God, of God not really existing. Mother Teresa wrote that. Mother Teresa was not immune from the dark night. People of the Bible weren't immune from the dark night. So what on earth makes us think that we're going to be? Now, what brings about the dark night of the soul? Well, normally the dark night of the soul happens because of an event. We lose a job, we get divorced, 
We watch somebody whom we love suffer and die. Or we go to the doctor and we receive a diagnosis that terrifies us and scares us. Or perhaps our experience of life is different than what we had planned for. Maybe we didn't get married when we thought we would get married or, or we didn't have a child when we thought we would have a child. Life is different than what we had hoped for, what we had planned for, what we had dreamed. Other times, there's no real explanation for the dark night of the soul. But we can still feel it, can't we? It's like this ball of pain that never leaves us. So here's the question. And this question may be on your mind right now. What do we do? What do we do when we find ourselves in this incredibly difficult season? Here's the answer. We do nothing. That may surprise you. But we do nothing. We cling to the words of Psalm 46.10. Be still and know that I am God. We wait in the stillness and we do our best to remember, you know what? God is still God. God is still supreme. God is still on the throne. God is still king. God is still sovereign, even over all of this. We hold on. We pray. We read scripture. We go to church. Even if we don't feel like praying or reading scripture or going to church, we still do these things as best we can. We worship, we rest, we do less. And we lean into the gift of Christian community. We allow others, not just to care for us, to bring us casseroles and those sort of things, but to also carry us. William White tells about a seminary professor in Europe. His name was Hans. And Hans was married to his wife, Edith. Well, during World War II, the couple was forced to evacuate from Europe, and they came and found refuge here in America. And fortunately, Hans, as a professor, he was able to find a job teaching at a seminary. And Hans was beloved by his students. He had a real gift for helping people to connect to the Bible and the truths of Scripture. And Hans and Edith were very much in love. The two of them would take walks together. They would hold hands and and they would sit right next to each other in worship services at the church. But then out of nowhere, Edith died. Hans was heartbroken. He was grief-stricken. He stopped eating. He would no longer go on walks. His friends who taught at the seminary were concerned for him, and so they came up to him. He was just overwhelmed by the dark night of the soul, and he said to them, I am no longer able to pray. I just can't do it. I can't bring myself to pray. And I am pretty certain that I don't believe in God anymore. There was a moment of silence. And then one of his friends said this. Then we will believe for you. We will make confession for you. We will pray for you. You see, folks, like those friends and the Gospel of Luke, who carried the paraplegic man on a stretcher to Jesus and lowered him through the roof. Remember that story? We allow our friends to carry us through the dark night of the soul. Yes, the dark night is painful. Yes, the dark night can be unbearable. 
but we need to remember something in the midst of all this. And that is that our soul's journey with God will not always include mountaintop experiences like I experienced when I was in high school after I left that retreat where things just feel wonderful. The reality is there will be what David calls in Psalm 23, the valley of the shadow of death. But listen, even in the valley when things are at their worst, God is still with us. God never abandons us. God never leaves us. God never forsakes us. We hold on to that truth. And we wait. And waiting isn't easy, is it? Because we live in a culture that conditions us to demand what? Immediacy. We want instant results. I mean, come on. In our culture, we have fast food, don't we? We have speed dating. We have overnight delivery. We have one weekend diets. We're not good at waiting. But during the dark night of the soul, we're not in control. We have no choice but to wait. And as we wait, what happens? If we allow it to happen, we grow. Because we discover something that's really important. That our relationship with God is not dependent on how we feel, but in whom we trust. Amen? We trust the God who is worthy of being called the Father of Jesus Christ. The God who even when his own son was going through the dark night, when he was betrayed, when he was denied, when he was arrested, when he was crucified, when he was buried, did not fail to act. God raised him up on the third day. And God will raise us up too. God will restore our soul. If only we will allow God to do that in his time. Remember Hans, the seminary professor who said that he couldn't pray, that he no longer believed in God? Well, one day he came up to his friends and he said, thank you for your ministry to me. I want you to know it is no longer necessary for you to pray for me. I want you instead to pray with me. God had restored Hans' soul. And God will restore our soul too. Though the sorrow may last for the night, his joy comes in the morning. Joy is on the horizon for the soul that continues to hope in God. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please join me in prayer. God, I don't claim to know the story of everybody here in this room. But I know that they're human. Just like Elijah was, just like John the Baptist was, just like Mother Teresa was, just like I am. There are times and there are seasons when life just hits us and overwhelms us, and we struggle to hold on. We're confused, we're in pain. And our soul carries a certain kind of heaviness. God, remind us of the words of Jesus.
Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Let me give you rest. God, please, help us to come to Jesus, to receive the salvation and the rest that only he can offer. When life is most difficult, continue to remind us, God, that you are still good, that you are still on the throne, that redemption is on the horizon, and help us to lean on other people as they care for us and carry us. We ask all these things in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen.